So it's just like, okay, let's just have a real talk, real talk, uh, no censorship. Thanks for joining us today for the Boiling Frogs Roundtable. I'm Peter B. Collins. I'm based in San Francisco. I host podcasts at peterbcollins.com and contribute the weekly Processing Distortion podcast here at Boiling Frogs. And of course, I'm co-host with Sibel Edmonds of the ongoing Boiling Frogs podcast series. Also with us is James Corbett, the host of the Eye Opener video series here at Boiling Frogs and also, of course, of the Corbett Report. We're joined as well by Guillermo Menez, who is the proprietor of TracesOfReality.com, and he produces the weekly Demanufacturing Consent podcast here at Boiling Frogs. Nice to see you, Guillermo. Good to see you too, Peter. And our publisher and the author of a very powerful book <laughs> called Classified Woman, is Sibel Edmonds. Sibel, it's great to be with everybody today, and uh, you're going to lay out the premise for our conversation. Please go ahead. Okay, thank you, and likewise, uh, Peter. This is going to be fun. Uh, yeah, having fun is really important. One of the main assumptions out there among most people is when we are uh, kind of moving away from this mainstream media model, which has been basically uh, losing its reputation. Most people have uh, come to the conclusion that really they can't get the facts from the mainstream media. And of course, with the birth of the internet and the beginning of the internet era, we have been seeing more and more people turning to what we call the uh, alternative uh, mediums for news and information. However, one general assumption is that while we are doing this, uh, while the dynamic is shifting and changing, the establishment, uh, including the mainstream media, remains static, meaning they are going to be doing what they have been doing. And more and more, the alternative uh, news channels are, have been or are taking over. And it's not correct because this would be assuming that, uh, or based on the assumption that the establishment sits and does nothing because they are changing as well and they are also accommodating these changes. Meaning, they are seeing the alternative outlets as one way to put out misinformation and propaganda and we must not forget this very important fact because we should always put ourselves in the position of our, um, the, 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 here in this case, antagonists and say, well, what would they do? Would they just do nothing and still continue with the CNN and BBC and the Fox News? Or are there other things and methods they will be utilizing in order to overcome this change and also accommodate these changes that have been occurring uh, with the birth of uh, the Internet and these so-called alternative channels? Well, it's very interesting, Sibel, because there are a lot of things rolled up in that. First of all, one of the things I would point out is that these so-called alternative media websites put out a lot of information that is just re-channeled from the corporate media outlets. And so there's relatively little original reporting. There is commentary that is often based on mainstream media reporting and official government sources. And so 
the alternative media faces some of the same issues as real journalism that is now rarely practiced in the corporate media. And that is the balance, the trade-off that you have to make to uh, risk losing access to sources when you do hard-hitting reporting that is critical of those sources. So that's one of the issues that I think is common to both old media and new media. But I think what you're driving at is that we have alternative media outlets that either self-censor by not investing in critical investigative reporting and that pull punches when bloggers or independent reporters bring them big stories. And let me offer you an example. Uh, we recently, in my Processing Distortion podcast, interviewed investigative reporter Peter Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E. And he has, he's a science writer, but in the last five years, he has spent a lot of time investigating Senator Dianne Feinstein and the business interests of her husband, Richard Blum. And his reporting does not get picked up by the corporate media, in this case, the LA Times or the San Francisco Chronicle, the two major papers in the state of California. And Byrne is a solid guy. Uh, I've reviewed his work very carefully. He uses uh, uh, solid public sources for the information that he publishes. And yet, his original investigation of Feinstein was funded by the Nation Institute, which is part of the Nation magazine. They underwrote the initial investigation he did, and then they refused to run his story. Mm -hmm. They spiked it. And uh, from what I'm told, the decision was made by Katrina Vandenhuvel herself. And so <clears throat> we have the old line progressive media, like the Nation, that will, and, and what I describe it is, is coloring inside the lines. They're given uh, a stencil and some crayons, and they make sure that they, they create their own original art item, but it's all inside the predetermined boundaries. And so we see a lot of that recycled with some commentary added and presented as alternative news, when in fact it is carefully controlled inside the defined lines and really parallels the corporate media that we're told it is an alternative to. Well, if I can just uh, jump on the back of that, I think you're exactly right in that analysis. And that brings us right back to what I was just covering in the eye-opener report from this week, uh, talking about Glenn Greenwald's response to critics of first-look media and uh, the, the criticism of uh, Pierre Omidyar's funding of that. And in his response, he says, well, I mean, Salon and, uh, and Democracy Now! and things like this are funded by big, uh, rich funders. Do you think that they pull, pull punches in their reporting because of that fact? And of course, the obvious answer is yes. Yes, I do think that I think that they are controlled to a large extent, and we've covered this on on the eye opener and Boiling Frogs post for a long time, talking about foundation funding and how that influences these so-called alternative media outlets that that really do wear the mask of alternative media when, in fact, they're um, they're something I think of a fundamentally different nature. They're still part of the establishment. They're just uh, m uh, more covert about it, or they they look more authentic, as it were. But um, but I'll go even one step further than that. I think that there's um, not just that type of 
under the table sort of uh, unspoken influence. I think there can be direct influence over this. And um, just to back up that conspiracy theory, why don't we turn to a, uh, a paper called Conspiracy Theories, written by uh, none other than Cass Sunstein, um, who has, of course, been part of the White House administration. And uh, back in 2008, um, during his tenure at Harvard, he wrote a paper called Conspiracy Theories. He co-wrote it with Adrian Vermeule, also of Harvard Law School. And they wrote about the need for cognitive infiltration of conspiracy theorist groups in order to um, to repair their crippled epistemologies, to put it in the, uh, the gobbledygook academic speak that he puts it in, by which they mean um, literally to go into these types of conspiracy theory communities that are popping up online and start ins uh, inserting the, the kind of official government word on, on these things as if it were coming from members of the public, when in fact um, the the idea that w was presented in this paper was that it would be obviously sourcing to those government sources. So, I mean, this is something that's been written about and talked about openly by members of the Obama administration, not when he was a member of the Obama administration, but still, um, this is something that's been talked about before. And I think this is far and away the most insidious idea out there, because of course, not only can the government come in to correct the crippled epistemologies of conspiracy theorists, but they can, in the exact same manner, insert whatever propaganda they want into the alternative media through this method. And we know this is why, for example, the DHS and uh, the FBI and these other agencies are so interested in investing money and time and, uh, and resources into uh, creating, for example, fake um, social media profiles that they use to insert their own messages into the social media mix and Twitter and Facebook and things like that, which again, we know has been going on. And unfortunately, I don't have the documentation in front of me, but I've done global research TV uh, video reports on that before. So uh, to me, this is what I think is is uh, particularly disturbing. And uh, well, I have more to say on that, but I'll throw it uh, over to Guillermo to see what he has to say. Now, I mean, so many different things that you guys have mentioned uh, we could expand on. But, uh, yeah, the sock puppet stuff is really interesting, James. I, I don't remember the company that was doing this, but I think it might have been Palantir even, which brings us back into the whole PayPal Meteor stuff. Uh, another uh, really crazy connection that has not yet needs yet to be explained. But um, so going back to how we started the conversation about how, you know, putting ourselves in the position of thinking about, in what way the establishment would begin to uh, corrupt the alternative media or use it to their advantage. And I don't think we have to even imagine much because it's already happening, right? It's, this is something that was, we, we see happening already. Um, you know, we see, for example, uh, Amazon's uh, Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post and then actively pursuing and, and, and receiving uh, CIA contracts. I guess there's no conflict of interest there either, right? If, and then, then, of course, you mentioned First Look Media, by the way, kudos on that eye open report. I thought it was really, really good. And uh, within, the, uh, within the report, you also uh, play a video, a short clip of the interview that uh, Alexa O'Brien provided to uh, a German outlet. I don't remember the name, but uh, over at the, uh, at the conference they were at uh, discussing uh, these issues. And she mentioned something that I thought was very interesting to, to your point, Peter, about uh, the media existing, like, you know, the alternative media, the old media, the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it all existing within an ecosystem, as she, as she put it. And that makes a lot of sense, as you, just, as you, just, as you described, you know, that, that there's, a, there's a place for those uh, out there who do get that sort of funding, I guess, because they have the resources to do the sort of work that you described to go and, and get that primary source material that we can then look at and comment on and dissect and vet and see if this is, you know, legit or not legit or what have you. Um, there's a place for that. But what happens when the alternatives that are in place now that do 
have a place in this ecosystem to look at things like that and examine them on our own, what happens when they start to go away? What happens when they start being bought out by these gigantic corporations like Amazon, like Omidyar Network, and so forth? And so that is a concern. Um, as you mentioned, you know, the, the dinosaur media is beginning to, to die out, quite literally. Their audience will, will begin to die out uh, eventually. And so the new generations today, I mean, their paper of record isn't the New York Times. It's Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. I don't know if you guys have heard the expression, but if it's not on YouTube, it didn't happen, right? That's so, <laughs> and of course, this is what we on YouTube as well. So, but what happens when we talked about this also, James? What happens when a big company like Google comes in and now buys out that sphere, that that place that we have this? We had a, a much more free dialogue, a much more free exchange of ideas on YouTube about you know five, four or five years ago. That's beginning the change. That's shifting now. Uh, Facebook has shifted. Twitter is changing their policies. These things that we rely on to exchange and these ideas on the internet are changing and shifting, are becoming centralized and, and, and you know, so it's a concern and it's already happening. So uh, what we do about that, I think, is the larger question. As we talked about before, I do hope that new alternatives uh, spring up, uh, alternatives to the alternatives, because often when we, when we talk about alternatives, I, I often think, well, alternative to what? Okay, you're independent. Independent of what? You know, and it really, it, one of the things that bothered me about uh, Greenwald's comments recently uh, and the first look media press release that was, uh, that came out a few days ago or a week ago or whatever it was, um, they stressed the word independent. We're going to be an independent media organization. And, I, and I'm here thinking, well, independent of what? Okay, uh, you're independent of Ted Turner. You're independent of Rupert Murdoch, maybe, but you're completely and wholly dependent on Pierre Omidyar and Omidyar Network. So, Independent of what is my question? Well, and, and I think that raises an important issue uh, about, you know, trying to navigate the minefield of media bias. And almost any outlet you go to, including my own, uh, reflects the bias of the people who produce it. The critical part is disclosure to the viewer, reader, listener um, about what their interests are and, and, you know, what the presenter's biases are. And to me, that's a critical part in enabling a smart end user uh, of media products, if you will, uh, to decide for themselves what they believe, who's credible, and, and, you know, what sources they want to build their own opinions on. Sibel, I want to get your take on this, but just on that very note, I just want to throw in um, uh, that that brings up an interesting little example of this that came up recently that I've been covering on FukushimaUpdate.com because obviously I'm looking at all the information about Fukushima and I see these stories pop up from time to time. And basically the, the, the rule of thumb is that the more sensational the headline and the more everyone is going to die, um, the, the faster the story will spread around the world, regardless of, of how true it is. I mean, it's the old Mark Twain quote, quote about uh, the, uh, the, the lie spreading halfway around the world before the truth even has its shoes on. And it's, it's really true, especially in this uh, sphere where everyone is quite concerned, and I think justifiably so concerned, about what's happening at Fukushima. And on that note, just this past, uh, past month, there was a story about um, some 
some steam that was coming from the uh, Reactor 3 building that was unexplained. And this was picked up by Turner Radio Network and turned into this story about how this radioactive plume was going to kill everyone in America. And that got a lot of play throughout the alternative media because it was a sensational headline. And, uh, you know, they're covering up the truth, which we know they are making, they're covering up various pieces of the, the truth about Fukushima. So it seemed plausible enough and it was spread all over the place. But when you start to look into the Reactor 3 steam story, you find out, well, it's been steaming off and on for at least the last six or seven months. So this is not a new phenomenon at all. And uh, and uh, that was, of course, not noted at all in that report. So, so again, I think it's exceptionally important to be looking at the sources of this because, again, it can be so easy for, for example, an FBI informant misinformation campaign to start spreading insane, crazy uh, theories as well about what's happening, which is just another way of... Uh, of uh, a turd in the punch bowl, as the as the saying goes, <laughs> dropping dropping one in, so no one wants to drink from that alternative media fountain, and that can be an extremely effective, unfortunately, way of poisoning the well for everyone else. Well, one element that uh, we should not leave out has to do with the psychology of the masses, and again, the establishment is very well aware of this. And uh, I know Peter mentioned this thing of disclosing our sources and remaining true and being an alternative, but also the establishment looks at what people really want. And this is something that I have been ignoring. I know all of us have been ignoring. This is why we haven't become this, oh, the major websites. And again, talking about Omidyar's uh, new (laughs) news organization, we are seeing that he's actually following the same footsteps of Huffington, Ariana Huffington with Huffington Post. This morning I saw the headline, it said he hired one of the top entertainment news editors because that's how Huffington started. She first started by people coming and posting the editorials. It were people alternative. You had all these different editorials, different point of views, but then before you knew, they started adding all the needed or demanded elements, meaning Kim Kardashian started popping up there and Justin Bieber started popping up there. And before we knew, it ended up being 75% of the site, meaning all the sexy stuff and the gossipy stuff. And it worked. She sold it to AOL for all that money. And the same thing is pretty obvious we're going to be seeing with this Omidyar network. Well, it says something to us about the establishment, but also it should tell us something about the mass population. And that is something that we have to look into and not always say, well, this is what the alternatives do, the pseudo-alternatives, and this is what the establishment does. Why is it that people are looking for that? I mean, why do they want to see Kardashian's tukush up there? I mean, I, I, I don't understand that because, but I must be among those very minute, irate minority because I don't care. But this is what people want. They want to see the horoscope popping up and they want to see Kardashian. So if that's the case, which is the case because we are seeing it and that is the market resourcing. This is what the market wants. And therefore we are giving the market people what they want. Then we are dealing with the other side of this element, and that is people. And why is this the case, the need for that entertainment and the sport and the sexiness and the hairiness and whatever you want to call it, uh, 
And if there are some pieces of news out there, it's good as long as it's sensationalized, you know, the way that Greenwald has been sensationalizing this thing. And, and when the psychology is such, really, uh, should, uh, I mean, is, does that make sense to just blame the establishment and say, well, this is what they are giving versus looking at the other side and say, well, this is what people are demanding. And then get, try to get to the bottom of that and the root of this, this bimboness, I call it bimboness, you know, the, the, the root of bimboness. Well, to mash up a quote originally attributed to P.T. Barnum, you can fool some of the people all of the time, and that's enough to get elected. <laughs> and, and so we, we do have, uh, as part of the political process, a whole structure where we take corporate and uh, corporate money and money from wealthy special interests and individuals. We funnel that into political messaging that panders to specific voter groups that are expected to turn out and support that candidate. And then when you look at it in the bigger picture of our culture and our media, um, one of my pet theories is that advanced market research <clears throat> is what we can blame for the spate of reality television shows, the, uh, the, the way the Kardashians have been turned into something we're supposed to care about. And I agree with you, Sibel. I, when I'm at the check stand, I, I look at these magazines and these stories, <clears throat> and I just say, why should I care? Who are all these people uh, who populate People Magazine and us and all of their, their copycats? And, and, you know, this is mass distraction. And that is one of the things that works in favor of propagandists. And let me contrast the mania with the launch of a new season of American Idol, and there are lots of people who turn this into a weekly family uh, event and they follow it like it's really important. And if there is any issue about the credibility of the voting for who the next American Idol winner will be, these people get up in arms. But Florida 2000, Ohio 2004, they couldn't have cared less because, you know, it, it wasn't their thing. And this level of distraction... I'll just give you one example, enables the Obama administration to continue to fumble the policy in Afghanistan, even with the criticism that's now surfaced from former Defense Secretary Gates. Nobody cares. The, the, there is no part of the U.S. electorate that is rallying around and putting any pressure on anybody to do anything about Afghanistan, whether it's to put more troops there, which would be crazy, or to pull out our troops tomorrow, which would be the most intelligent thing we could do. And so the, the market research gives both the people who operate the media and the people who run the government cues on how to continue to buffalo the American people and we sit back and, and gorge ourselves on the couch uh, and, and basically just passively accept it. Yeah, I completely agree with both of you. And uh, it reminds me of something I, wa I watched a while back. I think it was a Learn Liberty video that I've referenced a couple of time, uh, times on my show because I, I thought I made a really good point uh, that when one does a, a very basic cost-benefit analysis of whether it's worth it to be as involved and as informed as, as we are, um, it's actually 
irrational to do what would we do, <laughs> what we the minority do. It's actually far more rational and psychologically, they argue, healthier uh, to succumb to these distractions uh, and and care more about the things that you know garbage entertainment that satisfies our, our immediate needs and you know it's it's we talk about being distracted um, and that the media you know distracts us from the real information but in many ways like you said Sabo we distract ourselves and not we you know the the editorial we you know the people out there uh, distract themselves because that is something that they want after all otherwise it wouldn't exist at the levels that it exists uh, they wouldn't as you said Peter there wouldn't be so many reality shows if people didn't want to watch so many reality shows the Huffington Post wouldn't have an entertainment section if people didn't want an entertainment section and so uh, that's something that we do have to think about uh, I hope that people out there listening uh, will, will sort of reflect on this and think about how much time do I actually spend on that how much time do I spend uh, on, on this sort of, as I said, garbage entertainment, uh, these distractions, rather than what is really important? And what is really important? That's another question that I think probably uh, precedes that, that introspection. So, um, yeah, I mean, I can't disagree with anything you guys have said. And well, it's, well, then it's, let, it's, me, it's more let a, me play yeah. devil's advocate here, sure. because we are all agreeing about this. But, but <laughs> then we come along with this message in, that's presented in this you know, hour-long discussion format that only a few per- tiny percentage of the population <laughs> is ever going to bother to watch anyway, and probably only the people who agree with us. And here we are pontificating about how we sh- you know, should be spending less of our time on entertainment and things, talking to people who probably already do spend um, considerably less time than the re- rest of the population. The point is that the, so much of the population does does do this. And and we can look down our noses at that, or we can just accept it for, for what it is. And and it is part of an overarching system that keeps people working on this treadwill, treadmill trying to make ends meet. They're stressed out from their jobs. They come home at night. Do they want to sit there in front of a, a, a YouTube watching depressing uh, videos about the end of the world, or do they want to just laugh and, and enjoy themselves for a little while? This is part of fundamental human nature. So we can decry it, but it's not going to change it. And uh, to me, one of the most insidious and horrible, but uh, horribly effective things that, that has come along in the past century has been the entire PR industry, which, as we know, was, of course, created, really, uh, by people like Ivy Lee in the wake of the Ludlow Massacre for the Rockefellers and all of that. We, I'm sure people in the audience know a lot about that history because we're the type of people who look into that. But um, but the people like that, the Edward Bernays and the Walter Lippmans, who have been really studying humanity for, for not just themselves, but but um, their, their cohorts for, for generations now in the ways to best manipulate us and to put this information in a way that will trigger our base instincts and get people to re- react on base levels. They've made this into such an art form, they're light years beyond what we're doing in terms of being able to manipulate people's perceptions and and to get people to, to respond to this. And the question is, how do we counteract that? Because the point of all of that is that the Edward Bernays and the people like that have found out that it's not information that people react to. People don't take a look at information and, and calmly and coldly and rationally and logically weigh it all out. They they respond to base base level um, uh, emotional type uh, uh, um, imagery and things, things of that nature um, on a much deeper level. And that's why advertising these days does not tell you about what what the car, what the mecha- specifications of a car is and, you know, what miles per gallon it gets. It talks about, it shows you images on the beach and, you know, people in in bikinis and and all of this because that's what people respond to. So how do we 
do we do we do we do we do that ourselves do we take that do we start using that type of manipulation to get people to watch our media i mean it's something that i've never gone into but i mean it's a it's a valid question to be asking because it, it, is there a way to fight this fire without using the fire that they've uh, that they themselves have set that that's an excellent point yeah. And I think it's going to be interesting to see different responses to this because I don't think it's possible. Because I don't think we can maintain giving all this needed information provided, okay, and all these analysis, and yet make the needed compromises for the market uh, in, uh, in order to attract a bigger population. Because I tell you, for example, one of the elements that both the pseudo-alternatives and the establishment media is using is partisanship. Always appeal to partisanship. Meaning, one of the downsides for the majority of our website is, man, I cannot decide if she's a Democrat or Republican or a Libertarian. I am darn confused because one day she sounds like she's Libertarian, the next day, she's talking about something, and it just sounds like those nasty, nasty repugs. So I'm not going to have anything to do with that side, because we have been criticizing. We have been criticizing all these uh, factors that need to be criticized, which goes all around, which means already filters out 99% of the population. People want to belong. Okay, they want to belong, and partisanship is one way they perceive for themselves to belong. You go to these websites, all the liberal Democrats, they are just echoing each other, the choir, and it feels good. They are together, there they are the majority. So that's one element, and if you say we have to overcome this, so we have to pick side, let's be, a, let's be the liberal Democrats, or let's be the Republican, or let's be the Tea Party, then forget it. I mean, there is none of these things that we are providing, we will be providing. The second element is, and that is bringing trashiness. Okay, so I'm going to be unbuttoning my stuff and you're going to do your boogie dance. And, you know, one of the things, for example, Greenwald has been comparing himself to Bob Woodward in terms of nasty elements of CIA and all those things. I would say, okay, he's right on track. But even that scumbag and that is being Bob Woodward, he never did the things that this guy has been doing for entertainment. Have Do you remember ever seeing Bob Woodward's wife's picture, them kissing around and holding each other? Do you remember it? It never mm -hmm. happened. Seymour Hirsch, okay, he's a personality. He's been around for all these years. Nobody has ever seen his family being advertised, whether it's your children, look at my baby, and look at my baby's butt, isn't it nice and rounded, okay, <laughs> or look at my husband, or look at my partner. See, that alone shows you that is the entertainment element. I want to talk about my personal life. Soon we're going to talk about our sex lives. So we're not going to do that. It's, you exclude that. And then also playing the other psychological um, weaknesses that people have. I don't know if weakness is the right word to use for this, but one of the things that mainstream media and the pseudo-alternatives have been employing, in this case of Edward Snowden, they see that this uh, whole notion of the David and Goliath is really getting, garnering attention from all sides, no matter what the parties. So why not use it ourselves? Well... I want to turn to James for a moment because uh, I, I want to use a real-life example of some work that you have done that I found to be very effective, but you were concerned about it. And that is, a few years back, you produced a, a five-minute video package about all of the unanswered questions about 
And it was not only very well produced, but it included elements of, of uh, irony and satire uh, where, you know, you put out the obvious questions that nobody was addressing. And you lamented at the time that it had received over a million views at that point when I talked to you about it on, on YouTube. But I consider it to be a very successful uh, a package, a creative package on your part that didn't require uh, a Kardashian, uh, an exposed body part, or any of the other salacious stuff that is used by the media to get our attention. But it, it had incredible impact in driving home uh, that the official narrative of 9-11 doesn't hold up to scrutiny. So I, I wanted to put this out because it's a very positive example of your creative skills that connect with people without going <clears throat> to the tabloid media toolbox. Uh, yeah, um, I completely agree. exactly. Uh, you're referring to 9-11, a conspiracy theory, now 2.1 million views, but who's counting? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's been wildly successful beyond anything that I could have even possibly imagined at the time when I was creating it, when I truly thought that the only audience that this uh, video would have would be a tiny bunch of people who were interested in 9-11 truth. And for whatever reason, this caught on like wildfire and spread all over the place. And well, that is the reason, I, though. The reason why it was, was, it was because it was entertaining. It was, it was funny. And it was really, really well done. And so I was, what I was going to say earlier, uh, but to both of you, to your points, is that uh, to your question, James, is, is, is can this be done uh, and the answer, I think Peter just nailed it, it can be done. It, the answer is yes, but w without, you know, resorting to lowest common denominator stuff, without the sensationalism and the salaciousness and all that other stuff. But even what we're doing now, there is a certain element of entertainment to what we're doing. I don't, I don't think entertainment is a dirty word necessarily. Um, I think that what we can do, wh what we're doing can be informative and entertaining at the same time. And that is how we can ex sort of expand our reach and broaden our, our reach uh, to the audience, and I think the audience would be would be would benefit from that. From as we said uh, before, Sabel, from from being able to laugh every now and then about the things that that we're talking about. Some of that sometimes it deserves uh, to be ridiculed and mocked and laughed at. So that's okay, um, and more of that I think would be would be welcome. So we can use any 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 sort of things like that. Humor it could be music, uh, it can be uh, something visual, uh, art, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, to, to sort of engage people the way you described earlier, James, at, at that base level without doing the things that, you know, the old classic propaganda tactics used by, and, you know, and, the old and I'd like to follow up on something Sabelle said a couple of minutes ago um, that is, is really, I think, unusual. And that is that in this, this video podcast, we are breaking one of the fundamental taboos of mainstream media. That is, we're saying things that can be construed as critical of the viewer. <laughs> that taboo is observed at all times. <laughs> we, we kiss up to the viewer. We pander to the viewer. We do market research to find out what will make his or her uh, skin crawl, but still require them to watch this stupid reality show that's on television. And, and so we, we have crossed a barrier here that is rarely even identified. And that is that, yeah, there are a lot of stupid people in the United States of America who consume massive amounts of media without any critical thinking. 
<laughs> and nobody ever talks about that. Let, let me let me differ with you on that because I don't think we are. I think that we're just recognizing that our viewership is differentiating itself by its identity from the the types of viewers that we would otherwise be talking about the the, the types of general audience that's looking for entertainment. So I think part of what we're doing, I mean, not I don't think this is a <clears throat> a, a conscious strategy, but I think it's what we're doing is defining an audience for ourselves and and. And in fact, consciously, maybe even putting it in a, a smaller box, because we realize it's going to be a small percentage of the population. There's a reason why the tagline of Boiling Frog's Post is home of the irate minority. It's, I mean, it's creating that brand of the minority of people, the small group. You are the band of brothers and sisters that, that understand what we're doing. And that's and that in its of itself is a type of PR, isn't it? It's a type of you know finding finding your consumer marketing base and marketing to it. <laughs> we're talking to the people. We're we're in fact we're we're stroking the egos of most of the viewers of this because we're saying you guys are the smart guys who will listen to this hour long conversation while everyone else is is kind of dumb and but only wants are. to talk about the Kardashians. I I, I, ha- I can you still hear me? Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> well, yes, but is that is that the ultimate goal. So we have the irate minority and we give the information. If we are talking about change, okay, say we need to ourselves, we, the people, need to break the change. And if we have this very small, the tiny, minute, irate minority, and they come and we do have that. We have that base of loyal uh, supporters, people who are tired of all the pseudos, etc. But then what? I mean, what? I mean, we're going to... I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to die if I do this for another three, four years. And if I'm in the same spot, maybe that's because I'm, I'm not that long-term person. Because sometimes I hear some people who are active with politics, like I went to some of the Ron Paul meeting groups, and I was just to listen, to observe. And they were saying, you know, we are looking at 15, 20 years, you know, by gradual. I'm like, 15, 20 years. I know my daughter most likely is going to be somewhere like Guantanamo. I mean, considering the level, the extent of where we are in terms of the police state, I really can't. I mean, that maybe is me. That's my sharp shortcoming. See this long-term 15, 20 years. And I'm not talking about tomorrow. But I want this thing to... Just lost your audio again. We've lost your audio there, Sabelle. Well, let, let me... Sibel, while you work on your audio, let me just offer that um, as the elder here, (laughs) uh, I I first was identified as being out of line, out of the mainstream, when Richard Nixon was president. And my first uh, radio shows in Chicago were all about Watergate. That was a long time ago. And just this week, we learned who the courageous people were who exposed the COINTELPRO program that I was attempting to cover in real time back in 1972, 74, 75. And so then came Reagan. (laughs) And let me say that there have been waves of depression in my life as I've dealt with these changing realities that were moving away from my desired direction. And so there is no cure. Uh, if you're passionate about these issues, you will get worked up, you will care, and you will feel like, um, I could not do this forever. Um, I'm here to tell you that you probably can. 
Guillermo? Well, you know, uh, to Sabelle's point, I, I completely understand what, what, what I, I think she's saying is that, you know, we, we probably don't have, we may not have those 15, 20 years to wait for any sort of significant change to occur. Um, on the other hand, I, I do think that there is a, a place for that long game and for that uh, long-term perspective because, uh, I mean, at least to my mind currently, I don't see how we can reverse this, you know, gigantic national security state apparatus, this police state, this panopticon, how you change that overnight, how you, even within a year or two, it, it just, the, the, the task is so daunting uh, that it, I think it will take uh, a significant amount of time. However, we can, we can measure uh, within the short term uh, significant gains, uh, things like, you know, uh, again, the things that we're doing, this, seeing uh, the audience for Bowling Frogs post grow, I think that's in itself, even if it, you know, it's selfish, I think that in itself is a positive sign that at least more people out there are in tune uh, in, in listening or looking out or seeking out sources of information that uh, are not in line with the official uh, narratives. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what more to say about that. I, 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 can, I see it both ways, but I do think that, that we do need to have a long game. Um, but, uh, but I, I, I would love to see some kind of, uh, immediate change, uh, or significant change in the short, in the short term as well. Uh, I'm curious to, to know, uh, what you guys think of how, what, what, what would happen, what would need to happen, or what would you like to see happen, uh, that would amount to some kind of significant change in the short run? Well, well, here's, here's my last point that I want to, I want to make here is that, um, when we look at the how we've arrived at where we are and uh, how that process took place of building up the national security state, of course, that didn't happen overnight either. But there are certain things that we can look at as sort of, sort of defining moments along this process. And I always go back to the National Security Act of 1947 as, as one of those key defining moments at which the cancer was really injected into the system. And it was just a question of metastasizing from there. Um, and and what brought us to that point? And I think this goes back to something that Norman Dodd said in his uh, his testimony about his work uh, in a congressional committee looking into the foundation, um, the foundations, the Carnegies, the Fords, etc. And how the uh, Carnegie Foundation, from its very inception, um, the Carnegie Endowment back in 1908, its board was was uh, debating in a most learned manner, as Norman Dodd said in his distinctive style, um, how best to change um, society. How how do we change people's perceptions and, and understanding, and how do we engineer a different uh, uh, society? And the uh, the answer that they hit on that there is no way um, short of war more effective for uh, changing people's people's fundamental understanding of the world. And lo and behold, we're World War One, World War Two, um, National Security Act. I think that there is a line that we can draw there, um, and that's just one of the many lines. Um, I think war is a very effective way of really changing, uh, clearing the, off the the, the whole um, the board, the the chessboard, and and putting the pieces together in a different way. And um, that's to me is the really sad and disappointing part of all of this is that I think it's very easy to engineer the type of all of the problems that we have today, all of the national security state and all of this craziness, it's easy to engineer that through things like war and through this type of base um, propagandizing to people's you know, base instincts and things like that. But what we are doing is trying to construct something uh, opposed to that that appeals to the, the higher levels of people's cognition and the higher instincts and all of this, which is 
a, a different process altogether. I don't think that there is an easy way to do that. The only way we can do that is through through the types of exposition that we do. And, um, and I don't think there is a shortcut to that. And that's why I think it would be extremely easy to take us from where we are today into full-on hot lockdown martial law overnight if there was some, you know, nuclear terrorist event or what have you. You can imagine the scenario. It's exceptionally difficult to imagine any type of event changing things overnight for the better, yep. the elimination but, but of the security state. I know, yeah. but you're talking about, okay, uh, either one big event or no event, for me, it's more like the little baby events, like the baby steps. For example, in Oregon, this group of people got together and they basically, in Portland, eliminated fluoride from water. But it was a step. And for me, that counts. So that's different than saying, well, we're going to go from here to there. But then what are those baby steps? And, And in many things, I don't even see any steps because people say, Okay, there are a lot of problem statements, but we don't see much of solution. And that's one of the things I like about your show. You have been, and this is James, you have been, uh, you have been saying, okay, here are the problems, and now we're going to talk about some possible solutions, okay? Because what is solution to you may not be solution for me. And it's so hard to get everyone agree on what is one solution. There are, there's no one solution. There are maybe multiple solutions or what is perceived to be solutions, but Still, most it doesn't apply to most of the things I believe we are doing. It is, this is the stuff, well, we are being the alternative, so we are taking the steps. But uh, as I gave the example with the Portland thing, it was good because it was one baby step, and it was very clear. That's another thing, clearly defined thing. We want this change, and this is how we're going to go about this. And let's together go and get it done. And now, hopefully, it's spreading elsewhere. And those are the kind of changes I'm talking about. I'm not talking about this massive change that, woo now we're going to wake up one morning and the stupidity is going to change with this depth, in-depth thinking and critical thinking. That's not going to happen. But what are those baby steps and, and how do we go about more pushing so people are more willing and they are more motivated to take those little baby steps? Agreed. And there, there's, there are baby steps happening with regard to the NSA even. I don't know if you consider that a baby step, but, but I know, uh, James, you had uh, someone on from uh, Nullify NSA on your show. I had someone on, on my show as well. Um, that's one thing that I think is a concrete, uh, clearly definable uh, objective that one can strive for is, like they say, simply shutting that water off. Uh, it seems so simple, but it's something that can be effective. And I, I would encourage people, if you're not familiar with that campaign, do visit that nullifynsa.org and learn more about that. Uh, Sorry, that's offnow.org. Oh, you're right. Offnow.org. My, my mistake. <laughs> but yeah, definitely check that out. Um, there are similar efforts with regard to the NDAA, similar efforts with, with regard to a variety of other things that we face. But um, I suppose that's, that is the way to, to, to do this, right? Those baby steps, little by little, you know, focus on whatever issue is most important to you, find others that are with you on that, you know, given issue and attack it head on uh, in whatever way you choose uh, best to do that, but get out there and, and make it happen. Peter? Well, and, and the hard work is to try to build towards solutions because, you know, it's not that hard to identify problems and to rip into people for badly addressing them or failing to address them. Um, but it is difficult to put together thoughtful approaches to 
the complex problems we have. And yet I think that that is one of the things we have to remind ourselves of, that um, you know, people, people need not only to have the truth exposed for them to absorb, but I think they also need some practical ways that they can try to do something about it. But some of this inevitably comes up against uh, cynicism and the experience of being uh, ignored or batted down or retaliated against for, for standing up for the truth. So I, I don't mean to sugarcoat it or make it seem like, you know, this is just some easy bromide. It's a struggle on a daily basis. Well, okay. I'm going to, I have one thing. Do you still hear me? Yep. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I have one thing to add to that because that, that was when, I mean, this is what I was talking about, when the solution becomes so divisive, when the real solutions that are possible or viable-ish, viable-ish, I just made up a word, solution <laughs> tends to be totally marginalized, okay? Because the establishment the mainstream media, the pseudo-alternatives, okay, and they are all pushing, yeah, you know what we should do? Keep writing to your congressman and congresswoman, <laughs> and then go to court, and then, oh, oh, look at that federal judge. He ruled for us. Woo, woo. It is success. And then guess what? The next one, and the next one rules against, nobody says that was failure, but we've been doing that for so many years, and they're saying that's the viable way. Believe me, it's not going to go anywhere, because those people in Congress, they're maggots. They are not representatives. They are maggots. Okay, even the survey shows less than 8% have faith. Well, there's a reason for it. So if you don't have faith, if they're scumbags, if they're maggots, forget about this petition writing. Just forget it, okay? Don't waste time with that. Or this, oh, we're going to go bring lawsuits. Did you lose me? No, no, no. I just okay. want to say I and have one a perfect last way. Thing with, the, with one thing that you offered, and that is the, the uh, nullify. I, this is one of the most reasonable things I have seen out there, the nullify NSA movement. And guess what? This is one of the number one possible solutions. I'm going to put possible in there that has been poo-pooed big time. The moment, you know what? The same alternative, so-called alternative, made-up alternatives, they're going out there and they're saying, nullify NSA is going to bring slavery back. Because you, it is related to nullify blah blah, <laughs> and then it's it's related to some cessationism. You nullify it and say, "Damn it, you're gonna breathe slavery. You're gonna have plantations everywhere." And guess what? <laughs> Abortion is going to be completely illegalized. That's what that's what's gonna happen if you go and say nullify NSA because I am pro nullify. I have seen it as the most viable one, but I'm telling you, nine out of ten they say, Did you use use, use the word nullify? <gasps> Welcome to Savannah in eighteen forty one. Okay? There's going to be the masters and they're gonna be slavery. I'm like, huh? What is that? Well, that's the problem I'm talking about because viable solutions are being poo-pooed by the establishment and they are selling it so good and most people, they don't even know why they're doing it. They're like, if it's nullified, that means there's going to be slavery and then babies are going to be forced to be born, women are not going to lose the control of their bodies, birth control pills are going to be illegalized. It's like, huh? Now you. Yes, I shouldn't laugh okay. because unfortunately you're yeah funny. you're very right in all of that. Well, I have a perfect way to maybe tie all of this back together because guess who was on that panel of experts who is now recommending to uh, the Obama White House that the NSA becomes privatized? Basically, we we let private companies do the co data collection, and the NSA uh, does uh, freedom of, or does uh, information requests to those companies. One of the people on that panel of experts was 
Cast Sunstein. Sunstein. (laughs) It all ties back together. So our savior is going to come from the very same maggots, as you call them, that uh, (laughs) that have created the problem in the first place. Isn't that a convenient little bow? And that's the uh, the phony alternative. And that's what they want, I think, to to railroad us into. But on that note, I think um, this is already going to be nightmarish for me to edit together with all of our little technical (laughs) difficulties. So perhaps we can start wrapping it up and maybe just get some final thoughts from everyone about this uh, conversation and uh, maybe where uh, where the audience can take this from here. Um, Peter? Well, I would just say that um, media, particularly in the United States, has never been pure. And that because television used the advertiser model instead of the TV tax model that is common in Britain, that we have always been under the thumb of the sponsor. There's always been a tension there. And so I don't expect perfection, but what I expect is honesty. And that is what we provide. We don't pretend to be perfect here. We do our best to get the information that we think is important and put it in some form that uh, will be received by our viewers and listeners. And to me, the promise that we can keep is that we'll do our best every day to tell the truth, to put aside partisanship and uh, commercial interests or profit interests and share on an intellectual basis what we think is important. And my hope is that there are like-minded people who understand that, who know it when they see it, who will embrace it and support it, and that we could move through this period into a a new media period in the United States that's very different from what we see today. And it takes the people like us who reject the current model and who have a commitment to our own sense of what the truth is and a, a desire to share that with people. Well said. Guillermo. Indeed. No, very well said, Peter. Uh, I completely agree with that sentiment. And I, I'm, I also hope for those things, and I'm optimistic that uh, what we're doing uh, with Bowling Frogs Post, uh, with our independent uh, websites and model that we're, that we're used to, that it's truly independent, not the, you know, the way Omidyar and Greenwald use the word independent, a different definition of independent, I guess. But uh, I hope, I'm optimistic that people out there uh, will support uh, real independence and that uh, this uh, uh, BFP and, and among other uh, real independents out there will be viable in this market of, of media and uh, will thrive. Uh, I think that is the future, absolutely, is the future of, of, of media, uh, this new media model, doing this on YouTube, uh, podcasting. Uh, whatever it might be, uh, on our individual websites and collectively. So um, incredibly optimistic. I hope to do this again in the future with each of you. And um, that's about that about sums up my, my take on that. Sibel? Well, several years ago, after going through the so-called system with the courts and Congress, I stood up there and I said they want, and this is the establishment, they want people to believe that there is this separation of powers and three branches and et cetera. And that those notions are just illusions. They don't really exist. They don't. There is no separation. There are no mechanisms really that work. And therefore, I believe during that speech, internally, I nullified all of them. I nullified the Congress and I nullified the courts because I said, this is not where I'm going to seek remedies because it's really futile and it's waste of energy. It's distraction. 
it is that limited hangout thing that people put out there. And I'm going to repeat that. And I say, as a website, this is one of the things we have been trying to do. And one of the things I have been trying to do. So it's not only collective movements of some nullification, but in individual levels, we can nullify and, and really just kick them outside the, uh, uh, the, the, the solution system by saying, I'm not looking at you, you're the problem. So I'm not going to come to you for solution. So as a website, as, as the publisher, I would say, I have already decided from my side of it that I have nullified Congress as solution, the United States Congress as its current form, and the courts, and the I have nullified the mainstream media, I don't tune in, <laughs> and I have nullified the pseudo-alternative, so nullification rocks, and we're going to nullify a lot of things here and get rid of all these uh, uh, the, the, the distractions put out there by the establishment saying this is where you seek uh, solutions. Nullify everything. All right. Well, um, <laughs> you've all made some excellent points. I really enjoyed this discussion. I think we've put a lot of important points on the table, so I'm very much looking forward to the feedback and the discussion that will happen in the YouTube comments and on Boiling Frog's post, because, uh, again, I think the audience is a vital part of all of this. But since this uh, Boiling Frog's post roundtable is a democracy of facial hair, I, uh, I think that we should uh, <laughs> rename this the, uh, the, the Beard Roundtable. So, uh, so, Sabelle, I think you have to grow some facial hair before the next. May I? Uh, 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 or hairy studs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and on that note, that's the entertainment for today. Um, <laughs> at any rate, I think we'll wrap it up now. Um, so, uh, Peter, anything you want to say to, to uh, take us out? Thanks to our viewers for joining us for this episode of Boiling Frogs Roundtable. Cheers. <laughs>